Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, for, I think, the first time in this series, I'm not going to be uh, talking about a, a chunk of text. I'm going to uh, give you my overall thoughts on the Broke Cycle. I'm just going to kind of uh, give you a conclusion, uh, you know, do some lists, do some... Um, highlights i think uh talk a little bit about some text you might want to read to accompany uh the broke cycle and and whatever else i think about talking about so uh this is just sort of a conclusion to to the series um so obviously i love this series i've read it twice completely i I think i read quicksilver the first volume maybe three times because i read that when it first came out and then i set it aside and then i got the whole series later and read the whole thing through um and then i read it again for this this series um you know we don't have to kind of touch on all the themes again maybe maybe that's another thing i can do at the end of this episode if if it's not writing on too long but the first thing i want to do is is kind of rank the eight books in the baroque cycle um i'm not someone who you know rank stuff that often i don't like giving ratings to things um you know, I just, I know some people are really good at that, but I'm not that good. I, I don't kind of judge books in that way, I suppose. I, I know they're kind of a popular thing you see on podcasts and YouTube videos. But, you know, I can never really make my decision. I'm always flipping. And that's the case with this uh, this one, too. Um, but anyways, let's let's start with number eight. Um so for number eight, I'm I'm putting Solomon's Gold. Uh, so this is uh, vo- uh, book six in the series, the first book in volume three, the conclusion. Um, now, of course, the system of the world, that final volume, is sort of telling one long story over three books. So all of those texts are a little bit problematic. System of the world is just like a climax um, to the whole series in a way, um, and the the two preceding books. Um, nothing's really resolved in any of them, so they're really hard to kind of have a, a story. Um, you know, I think that's not true of the others. The others seem to have a thematic core in a story, especially Quicksilver. Quicksilver, that first volume, is kind of the best in terms of each book standalone. I think they even published those standalone. I don't know if they published the other books as standalone. And they do sort of, they can be read as, as solo stories. Maybe not at least so much, but the other two certainly can. Um, but anyway, Solomon's Gold. Uh, the problem with this is, you know, the first half of the book is just Daniel Waterhouse running errands. Uh, and there's some interesting things in those errands, especially the Newcomen steam engine. Um, but, you know, it's you're kind of in Daniel's head for most of the time. There's some politics that's a bit dry. Um, now, the, the heist on uh, the tower... Uh, the Tower of London and the Mint is pretty good, but you don't see much of Jack Shafto in that. Uh, where you do, it's great, but you spend a lot of time with Daniel and Isaac Newton kind of being idiots. Um, and that's a nice contrast to how we've kind of seen those characters. But um, but yeah, it doesn't quite make up for just the the overall kind of you know nature of the book. Now, I like all the books in the Broke Cycle, so I'm kind of putting it at the end doesn't mean it's a bad book it's just uh where i'm putting it so on the bottom is solomon's gold uh so number seven uh i would place uh odalisk i suppose uh and this is again not because of there's not not because there's not good stuff in it it's um it's it's i get the sense that stevenson was trying to like do so much in that book that uh it ends up a little bit disjointed. There's huge gaps in time. There's uh, a lot of time is spent with uh, letters about the court, a lot of stuff on cryptography. If you're into that, that's good. If you like Cryptonomicon, I think Odalisk, um is a nice companion to that. It's the one that focuses most heavily on cryptography. It's also our best look at the character of Eliza, except for maybe the Junkto, but even more so than the Junkto. This is our... Are, we really get into the head of, of Eliza, but then as often through her letters, so she's not the most reliable narrator. Now, maybe the best set piece in this is all told in epistles uh, and journals, and that's Eliza's adventure in, in the Rhine as a spy for William of Orange. 
and that's that ends up being sort of a bit of a fake because it turns out Rosignol is not a reliable narrator about how he tells that story to the to the king. Um, so that's good. But Rosignol is not one of the greatest characters in the book, and the relationship between Eliza and Rosignol is not the most uh, of the most believable uh, of her romantic encounters throughout the book. Uh, you find. Uh, you know, actually, I don't think any of her relationships are that great. Uh, she kind of does get forced into a marriage at the end. I mean, except for Jack. Maybe that's on purpose. But, you know, her fooling around with Bob Shafter, that's kind of interesting. But, you know, her kind of court romances, they're, it's not the most compelling stuff. The Daniel story in Odalisk, of course, it has that great bit with the revolution and all that. But the problem, I think, with Odalisk is it's just, it's just trying to do... Um, too much and and nothing is as well developed as it maybe could have been if if neil stevens had more time you know i think odalise could have been stretched out over over two books um you know especially stuff on the glorious revolution we'd like to see more of that more stuff on alchemy maybe that's especially the period where uh, isaac newton is getting more and more seduced by by alchemy and faccio and all that um and then i think there's a lot that's that's kind of forces you to suspend your disbelief more than usual more than usual i mean you have to do that a lot in this series of course but yeah um odalisk is number number seven so if you're a fan of that book sorry it's not my favorite now it starts to get really hard and i really regret having to put uh uh number six put quicksilver as number six so we're talking about the first book um this is you know when i first read this i was kind of blown away by by what he was doing and you know how he's able to intertwine the story of you know the previous generation and the english civil war uh the remnants or the consequences of the english civil war uh with the rise of natural philosophy it's thematically so good setting up the questions that he's asking um um but you know daniel waterhouse in this period of his life this is when he's a student he's you know not the commanding figure he would be later um he does have a nice arc though i think one really nice thing about quicksilver is daniel waterhouse's arc in that in that uh novel where he starts out as this puritan you know son of drake um really committed through because of familiar reasons to that project and then he has to then he chooses to go into natural philosophy um through his relationship with isaac newton and then by the end of the novel he becomes like a, a prominent kind of dissident right carrying on in some ways the drake tradition um but but going at it in a different way and that that's, that'll reach its climax in in odalisk so um the stuff about uh epscom is great in quicksilver i think it's some of the highlights where we meet hook um we meet Wilkins. Um, Wilkins' storyline in Quicksilver is pretty nice too. So there's a lot to love. And again, I'm, I, you know, these books are all so great uh, that I really don't like ranking them. I really have trouble ranking them. But I had to put Quicksilver as number six, um, just because the other books are so great. They're so they're so wonderful. All right. So number five. Uh, for number five, I'm going to put. Uh, uh, the King of the Vagabonds. So this is book two of the series. Um, our introductions to Jack and Eliza is is the main purpose of this book. And really it's Jack, right? The title of, you know, Quicksilver is about Daniel. King of the Vagabonds is about Jack. And Odalisk is mostly about Eliza and Daniel to a lesser extent. Um, and it's a wonderful introduction to this character. And it's hard not to fall in love with Jack Shafto. Uh, seeing him march... Uh, with the Austrian armies to fight the Turks, seeing his, you know, background on his previous adventures. Our first window into kind of the lower class is, is a great addition to the story. Realizing we're not just getting a story about natural philosophers and politicians, but we're getting a story about all of European society from different class levels. Um, that's great. The romance between Eliza and Jack is you know, we, when we, since we know where it goes and we know Jack's going to be in love with Eliza for, you know, his whole life. And we're supposed to feel something about their final, them finally being reunited. Um, their relationship is, I think it's partially about Eliza, the way Eliza's characterized. It's, she does come off as, as a bit cold 
um, you know, in a little, you know, just a little bit unapproachable. Um, and that's one of the reasons Jack eventually had to go off and do his own thing, of course. So it, it fits the character. But, um, you know, I think a little bit more on that relationship would have helped that book. I love the, like, Jack's adventures in Germany the, with the witches. That's wonderful stuff. His journey through France is is great. We enter introduced to the Esfanians. So that's all good stuff. We're introduced to the, um, the Dachshans and the Dutch politics. Um, you know, the Dutch stuff in The King of the Vagabonds is a little... A little slow when you see Eliza skating around with DeVoe and Duke of Monmouth and all that stuff. You know, that's, that's, it's, it is what it is. It's putting Eliza where she needs to be in Odalisque. Um, but the Jack stuff in King of the Vagabonds is really, is, it's a really great introduction to the character. And I think King of the Vagabonds is certainly a, a, a great book. It's a lot of fun to read. Um, so, it's also really good on introducing, I guess, the commerce side of the story, too, because a little bit of this in Quicksilver, but it's really in The King of the Vagabonds, where uh, Stevenson expands the story to to being a story about commerce and commodities and things like that. I think this is the book where Eliza shorts that lead merchant, and uh, and that's a great moment, too. That's, that's, a, that's probably a, a pretty nice uh, introduction to Eliza's more devious and uh, brutal nature. All right, so King of the Vagabonds is number five. For number four, I'm going to put the Junkdo. Um, the Junkdo really centers on Eliza and to a lesser degree Daniel. Um, this is like, like with Bonanza and Junkdo, these are both covering a lot of time. They bounce around. And this is a, this was a problem I said with Odalisque, but the, you know, by splitting up these two characters, um, you would get, we get two pretty focused stories. Bonanza focusing on Jack and the, the Solomonic Gold and his adventures around the world and the Junkdo focusing on Eliza's challenges in the French court uh, in the context of the Nine Years' War and her kind of high water mark of her character, which is the, the, the shorting and the destruction of the Hackelhaber um, banking estate. And the Hackelhabers, of course, are tied to alchemists in interesting ways, and the two stories do interconnect. Uh, her marriage to Etienne Dakashan and the the reveal. I, I forget if this is in Bonanza or the Junkto because the two stories do intertwine at the end. But the the realization that we've been reading Etienne Dakashan wrong um, in the story, you know, that he comes off as the good, like the better than her, his father, but it turns out he's pretty despicable himself. That that might be in Bonanza though, in the the Jack scenes at the end of Bonanza. Um, so, um, some of the best Eliza moments, I think, are in the Junkdo. Um, the best stuff, also the look at the Nine Years' War and the consequences of that and the impact of that on individuals. Um, and we got a wonderful case of revenge with Bob Shafto. And I think this is where Bob Shafto finally is reunited with his wife. So the Bob storyline in the Junkdo is also really excellent. Um, the Daniel story in the Junkdo is probably my least favorite in the in uh, of the major of like we got bob eliza and daniel really in this book um the the daniel story is the least interesting i guess because we you know the interesting thing that happened is him burning the, the alchemy lab of, of of isaac newton back in 1877 so that's all off screen that's happened in the past and we really see daniel just trying to find a place for himself in english society and, and rogers leading him um, and it gets him to the new world, which is where he needs to be uh, for the story. But the the Daniel story is not that great. But the other stuff in the Junkto is is, is quite excellent, I think. Um, especially the, the 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 silver thing. Oh, and Eliza's uh, attempt to build a, a to, to buy timber for the French fleet. That's wonderful stuff too. So I'm going to put the Junkto as number four. Um, then for two and three, I really struggled which to put first, system of the world or currency. And I think I'm going to go with currency for number three. Uh, currency, I, you know, I, I, when I first read it, I didn't remember much about this, this book. But in rereading it, I think currency, especially the last hundred pages of currency, is brilliant stuff uh, with uh, the, 
transition to the Hanoverians and uh, just wonderfully memorable. You know, I'm surprised I didn't remember this book more when I first read it because I think it's got some of the best scenes. The Evgeny assassination attempt on Peter the Great, the, the, the duel in the opera house with Handel continuing to conduct the, the orchestra while this duel is going on, the death of uh, de Jax, um, you know, the Jack Shafto reveal in Currency is is good stuff too um so yeah i think this story this story is really a sleeper uh this not this book is really a sleeper and i think it's it's should be high up uh, other people may not put it that high I, I i guess but it's in my reread i'm really feeling um good about this book for number two uh i'm gonna put system of the world the climax of the entire story um you know what you know how much good stuff can we say about the system of the world uh the the raid on the on the the raid on the alchemy lab jack's alchemy lab uh or his factory really the discussion of industrialization i think is so well done in the system of the world you know that we're actually transitioning to an entire different economic system and system of production and we see it from people like newcomen and daniel but also from jack shafto and what he's doing so we see it across classes um the the dapa stuff's not as compelling for me in the system of the world but the jack storyline here it's such a great uh, resolution to his character um his sacrifice for his sons is is quite beautiful his betrayal by isaac um, and ultimately his escape because of the mob is is thematically really wonderful as well so much is wrapped up obviously because that's what this book is trying to do but i um I'm going to put the system of the world as, as number two. And that leaves for my number one ranking, uh, Bonanza. I think Bonanza, it's just, it's the most fun. It's, it goes all the way around the world. We meet all these wonderful new cast of characters like uh, the Esfanians. We get a closer look at them. We get a, you know, uh, Gabriel Goto, uh, Yevgeny, uh, Van Hook, Dapa. We get all their backgrounds, all their family histories, all the things that made them galley slaves. We get such an intimate look at people from diverse cultures, both in the cabal that Jack's a part of in Moza forms, but also in all the different places they go. They go to America and Japan and Manila and India, Cairo, uh, North Africa. Uh, they cross the Atlantic. They cross the Pacific. Uh, the Pacific stuff at the end of Bonanza is brilliant, I think. Um, the whole subplot with Dejex is, uh, you know, that's a wonderful reveal, I think, that Dejex destroys that Manila galleon in a kind of, and it's not really revealed till currency what he's really after there, which is the destruction of commerce itself and a restoration of kind of a medieval religious moral universe uh, so even though that story takes a few books to finish up and for to be fully contextualized um you know the stuff that he puts on the page at the end of bonanza is wonderful and then jack's torment at the end of seeing eliza being raped by etienne um and then the resolution of esfanian and jack's break you know that they you know esfanians hated jack for 20 years or more and then they he finally sacrifices himself to you know for jack um Beautiful stuff. Uh, the raid on uh, Bonanza, the raid on uh, the, the the smuggling the gold out of Cairo. Um, wonderful set pieces, and certainly if this was ever to be filmed as a TV series, which I think it would make a great like five, you know, season TV series. I don't know if it needs all eight, you know, but I think I think five or six seasons could do really good justice to this story, and. That would be some of the most memorable stuff on the screen, I think, is what we see in Bonanza. Um, anyway, so that's my my ranking of the of the eight books of the Baroque cycle. If you disagree with me, let me know. Um, and if I were to do this a week later, I might I might change my mind. I certainly wouldn't have put this ranking when I did the reread. I probably would have put uh, currency much lower. System of the world, I probably would have put a little bit lower. Probably would have put quicks. Uh, Quicksilver and King of the Vagabonds higher, um, but but that's that. So um, 
that's my thoughts on the ranking. The next thing I wanted to do here is uh, talk about the the characters um, and kind of not really. I'm not going to rank these characters. I'm just going to I just pick 10 uh, historical characters and 10 fictional characters. Well, 13 because Jack, Daniel and Eliza kind of they're on the top anyways. So I set them aside because they're obviously the best characters in the book. Um, but I picked 10 historical characters and 10 other fictional characters. And again, this isn't any particular um, order. It's just I think these are the best characterized and most interesting to me in the in the reread. So as for historical characters, um, Leibniz is is such a thematic center of the story. He has to be on this list, right? Um, he's there in almost every book in some degree. Uh, is if he's not on stage, he's influencing how people think and interact with each other. Um, how Daniel interacts with Isaac how Eliza interacts with uh, Jack and how Eliza interacts with the Hanoverians. It's all tied to Leibniz. And Leibniz is there in almost every major theme of the book, whether it's money, whether it's industrialization. Remember, he's actually creates something like the steam engine for pumping water out in the silver mines of the Hertz Mountains. It just didn't work because of silver workers, or silver miners sabotaging the, the machines. So he's there before Newcomen even. So that theme is figured out by him. The The theme of the system of the world is Leibniz is a foil. I, you think of Isaac Newton with that, because that's, of course, the name of the third volume of Principia Mathematica. But Leibniz has his own vision of the system of the world, right? The best possible worlds, the monads, all that. So the natural philosophy, philosophical discussions are great. Whenever you have a great philosophical debate or conversation, Leibniz is probably on stage during those. Um, I could go on and on about Leibniz, I suppose. Uh, the cryptography stuff, uh, the calculus dispute. Um, there's almost nothing in this book that Leibniz doesn't touch. So he has to sort of, he has to be on this list. Uh, I mean, he, if I were to rank, he'd have to be number one of the best, the, the best dramatized historical characters. Now remember, this is uh, quasi-science fiction, a little bit of fantasy. It's not pure historical fiction. Uh, Neil Stevenson takes liberties with these characters, um, but that, that's fine. Uh, the next one I'm going to put, again, this isn't in any particular order, except maybe Leibniz has to be on top. Uh, Faccio. Uh, I think Faccio is uh, compelling. I wish we could have saw a little bit more of him. He basically is hanging out in the Junkto and Odalisk in those two books and another kind of natural philosopher a lot of natural philosophers on this list actually um but he's got a really he's, he's kind of hard to read and i think that makes him kind of interesting he you know his interactions with eliza are really exciting he's not afraid to get his hands dirty he's you know part of the isaac newton kind of alchemy gang you know when daniel approaches them in the end of odalisk confronts them in their is it in newton's home wherever um you know faccio's there but you're not sure his beliefs he seems to be a good scientist and he's a great symbol of uh, like isaac newton is of the relationship between the old ways of thinking and the new scientific scientific method all right then isaac newton i, I wrote down um he's for most of the story the first five books he's just like a someone who comes in and out of the life of Daniel Waterhouse at various times. He, and we see as Daniel becomes more and more seduced by materialist philosophy through his relationship with Leibniz, who does, he wasn't a materialist, but um, it's still, he's essential in leading Daniel to that. You know, Isaac Newton's the contrast. He's the one who's in alchemy. And so, so much of the tension of Daniel's character is in how he associates with this old friend of his. Um, he's, He's really essential to understanding Daniel's character, uh, so he's important. We really get in the head of Isaac Newton a little bit more in the system of the world, and we see his failings and his anxieties, and he stops being this, this quasi-divine figure almost, and becomes a much more mundane, uh, aristocratic person who wants to dissect Jack's brain and wants to uh, gets outsmarted by Jack all the time. He gets sick, and you know because he's constantly going to Newgate to try to beg Daniel for the or jack for the picks 
you know, he kind of ends up being a little bit of a pathetic character in some way. Um, and I think that's really well done. So he goes from being almost untouchable, you know, in his brilliance to being a really, really flawed character at the end of his life. And that's just because we see him. We, we get a closer look at him. And, and Daniel, by this point, is so independent of, of his, the previous power Isaac Newton had over him. It, it's a, so important to Daniel's character. Um, anyways, I like, you know, I, I was debating whether to put Isaac Newton on there because he is kind of unlikable uh, throughout the whole series. But I think what Stevenson does with Newton is is pretty good. So he kind of has to be on the list. So next I put Hook. Um, Hook's, of course, another natural philosopher. Um, and Hook is... I, I just love the Daniel-Hook interactions from when they first meet at Epsom to the time Daniel's in the Tower of London and Hook comes to visit him and, and Daniel talks about, uh, you know the scene versus the the kind of brilliance of Isaac Newton versus Hook's more mundane kind of methodology, but how Hook's method actually does produce more truth in some ways than Isaac's does, because it is something that anyone can do, right? But, you know, the, how's it go? It's like Newton's thought things that no one thought, saw before, but Hook, you've, just by looking at a microscope, have seen things no one's seen before. And that, that really connects to the kind of Leibniz's view of perception. Now, perception is really key to the monadology and his his own understanding of God and, and humanity's relationship with the universe. So that's great. Uh, you know, the saving uh, Daniel's life, and it's that's not revealed to the end of the book and the end of the whole story that Hook used magic to save uh, Daniel's life um, using some kind of alchemical secrets that were buried. Uh, you know in the in the in the philosophical language so that's a nice that's a nice reveal and hooks there at the end of the story just as much as you're there in the beginning of the story even though he's he's dead he's his impact is, is still felt so i like hook um next i'll put john churchill uh, the duke of marlborough he's another character who's sort of there throughout the story we might hear about him in quicksilver he really First enters the story, I guess, with Jack. So Jack has memories of him. Um, and then we see him as Bob's commander. Um, and then we see him in politics towards the end. He's probably not the most likable character, but you, 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 you know, he's, you see his brilliance, right? And Jack appreciates him. Bob certainly appreciates him. He's so crucial to Bob's character. So let's put John Churchill on here. Next, uh, Princess Caroline. Um, yeah, well, we can look at these together. Princess Caroline and Sophie. Uh, it's kind of our windows into the Hanoverian um, storyline and the Winter Queen line. And, and I think, you know, this must, you know, early in the planning of this book, I think Neil Stevenson must have wanted to have these characters central to the story. Um, and of course, they interact with Eliza and Waterhouse and Leibniz um, and are crucial to all their characters. Um, not so much Jack's, but even Jack knows all about the Winter Queen, right? I think it's Jack who first tells him about the Winter Queen um, and that that whole family. Uh, Caroline, of course, it, Sophie's much more practical. She's got like really practical political and economic goals, and she's kind of using Leibniz for much of the story in that way to, to achieve those goals. Uh, Caroline is is such a brighter star though um you know her interest in natural philosophy her political brilliance and this is all reflected in her real life role as as one of the most important consorts to to english kings um in history uh, i looked this up she actually when george ii would go back to hanover to deal with his hanover stuff she often kind of ruled she was a, she basically served as a regent so um, we don't see that in the story because she never gets to be queen in the time we see, but, you know, she, she becomes the symbol of the system of the world, at least an element of it, along with a few other characters. But she's, she, her goal is to unify the Leibniz-Newton debate, um, and she understands there's a new system of the world tied to commerce and, and all that. And we see her from a small girl uh you know her birthday party where she gets the library and, and that's a wonderful scene and then we see her as a 
as a grown-up, um, you know, taking on important uh, roles as a as as a future queen. Um, so that's good. Sophie's on the list too, but um, I guess I already said what I want to say about Sophie. Um, a character uh, that's not in the story very much, but when he's there, he's really memorable. Is Peter the Great. Um, so he's another historical character I have to put on the list. Um, we only see him through in the final volume. And, and, you know, he's such a busy guy, right? He's living incognito uh, or trying to. I guess he was, it was pretty known he was doing that. But, you know, he kind of went as a, you know, with the, with the finger mustache to the Netherlands. He spends time in London. I don't know if that's based on reality, but at the same time, he's fighting the Swedes, right? And this brutal war, this, the, 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 what's, what was it called again? The Great Northern War, you know, sabotaging the Swedish Empire. There could have been more about that in this story, but we don't get much. But the, when he's on stage, especially in the end of currency, it's, it's really great, um, really memorable stuff. So I, I like how Peter the Great is presented and used in this story. In the same way, we, we've got to put Louis XIV. Uh, he's got a lot of pages devoted to him. Um, he's kind of there mostly as a as someone directing the character of Eliza and Jack. Um, but he's got his hands in everything. He's behind almost everything going on in the story in terms of politics. Uh, the, the second 30 years war um, that he was this was it 30 years yeah about that you know the nine years war and the war of the spanish secession he's at the center of those you know we get the wonderful versailles imagery we get a little bit about his health uh some of the more gruesome aspects of the book are related to louis the 14th health something that's drawn from from life um and we don't really get into the head of of Louis XIV, maybe at the very end of the story when he's hanging out with Jack Shafto, we get a little more personal side, but that he had to. He had to be a role, right? He had to um, present himself that way. He had to be larger than life. Um, and even when he's not on stage, we feel the, we feel the touch of Louis XIV. And then I'll put John Bart as the last one, um, another kind of lover of Eliza. Um so I'm not putting Rose in you. I think John Bart's a more interesting person because he was kind of a pirate. So let's just let's just have him on there. He's, he's our historical pirate. I guess we have Blackbeard too, but we never get to spend too much time with him. All right. Uh, so that's my favorite historical uh, depictions depictions of historical figures in the in the Broke Cycle. Now let's go to the fictional characters. Um, now um, the first three. I'm doing 13 here, but let's just say Jack, Daniel, Waterhouse, and Eliza are the top three. And I don't have to say too much about these characters. They're the cornerstone of the book. Uh, this book doesn't exist without them. There are viewpoint characters through the vast majority of the, of the tale. So they're all wonderful in their own ways. They have their own arcs. If I had to rank them, it's Jack, Daniel, Eliza. Um, and I, I say that with some hesitation. I wish in this reread, because I always liked Eliza when I first read it. I... I thought she was an amazing character, um, but she just strikes me. She doesn't have that much to do in the third book. Um, she's, and I wonder if this is on purpose when I'm rereading this, if, if Eliza was something in Jack's mind more than she was in reality. She's got her great moments, and she's certainly brilliant and really, really talented. Uh, but for much of the book, she's like a pawn of different players, and that's uh, unfortunate. Um, she's, I don't know. I think you know my opinion about Eliza, if you've been listening to this series. I, I adore her as a character, but I think there's maybe some missed opportunities for just a, if we could feel like, like Eliza's attitude towards Jack for much of the series is so harsh. She never can forgive him for his one mistake, even though all he did for her. Um, and maybe you could say, oh, she's working behind the scenes to help him. But she doesn't do that much. She just basically gives him enough money so he can be hung um, quickly. So, I don't know. I, I think there could have been a different way uh, Eliza could have been handled. Um, Daniel, um, I mean, he's got some of the best character arcs. Uh, he's probably got the best character arc. You know, going from this cowardly student who let... The role of Upnor kill a Puritan, and, and he didn't 
tell him he didn't like and reveal it to the authorities. Uh, he basically gets coerced to keep it quiet to someone breaking Jimmy and Danny out of jail, someone riding with the czar, someone stealing the Solomonic gold from under Isaac Newton's um, uh, nose. Um, wrapping up the story. I mean, he he's there in almost every in every area in every area wrapping up these people's storylines. So and he, and he does it with a lot of courage. I guess you see it with uh, when he goes into the surgery for the bladder stone and actually dies on the table, uh, resurrected by magic. But that's a great Daniel and kind of lion's den kind of moment. But his courage in the final book is is really touching, especially in I think in currency and in the system of the world. And then Jack Shafto, just how can you forget him? He's uh, the best, obviously the best character in the in the book, uh, the centerpiece of the best story of the best of the eight books, and the you know he goes around the world right, and he he's a pirate, he's a king for a while, he's. This Jack the Coiner, he's got so many different names and he's an illiterate, right? So he, he's so crucial to, you know, the class dynamics in the book, the theme of, 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 of the emergence of a liquid society um, that does break down these aristocratic lines slightly, if not fully. Um, he becomes like an early industrialist. Um, not just a pirate. So he's like in a factory owner at one point in the story. So good stuff. Jack's just great. And we're so glad that he survives at the end. Uh, crowd crowd surfing to, to to his new life with uh, with Leroy in, in Versailles. All right, let's get to the, the, the other 10 characters I, I like. Or I think are memorable and well presented. Here, let's let's start with the villains. So, of the villains, we got a bunch. We got Dejex, we got Etienne Dakashan, we got Etienne's father, we have uh, um, Earl of Upnor, Isaac Newton to a certain degree, but he's not fictional. So, let's say Dejex. He's the best villain, I think. Both in like how he wears different hats, and you don't quite know what's up with him. Um, until later in the story and then his final when he gives his master plan like a like a super villain to Eliza he actually wants to roll back time he's the counter he essentially is the villain of the story because he's the counterweight to the system of the world he wants to go back to the middle ages so I, I think uh, Dejex is just a wonderful villain and he does some truly monstrous things and he's got this conflict between kind of his, his relationships with uh the Olinos and the Satanists and his own life he feels might be connected to that and he tries to maybe make up for it by restoring this Christian Catholic moral order uh, through the Inquisition. His desire to make England one large auto de fe. It's just a wonderful arch supervillain kind of moment for him. Um, you know, Eliza kind of kills him in a silly way, I suppose, throwing a cello at him. But whatever i kind of wish that jizaks had lived and he kind of in the law finals like if there was an extra epilogue with jizaks just kind of sneering around plotting his next scheme that would have been nice yeah i think killing jizaks was a mistake now the other villain is etienne dakashan i'm going to put on the list um just in part because it's a bit of a fake he's the politest man in france right that's how we first learn about him and meet him and we know his father is a piece of crap uh slave trader and all that but you think etienne's not too bad and eliza accepts marriage to him and you don't hear anything about their marriage except they had a few kids right one kid died you know the kids they're, they're not even in the system of the world there's no mention of these dakashan kids it's just a they're not they're not the real eliza kid the the the, the one that really matters is johan right um, there was that girl, though. I think, is she the one that died? I don't even remember. Because um, those kids don't matter. Um, but in all the time we spend in Eliza's head, um, we don't know she's being raped and abused on a possibly daily basis by her husband. Um, we don't really know that he's behind so much of the machinations with the Jacques and trying to get the gold and the, the trick to get Jack Shafto. 
in Trapped. His plans for Jack Shafto initially are really horrific. Basically, to make him a slave, watching Eliza be tortured um, daily. Um, turns out to be a really excellent villain, even though after the reveal, he's only on the stage for a little while. It's kind of like Dejex. Uh, after the truly viciousness of these characters is revealed, um, they're taken off the stage. But uh, Dejex is, so, is, is a much better villain, I think, than Etienne Dacachon. But Earl of Upnor is the most boring of the major villains in the story. You know, just a guy who kidnapped Bob's uh, fiance and kept her as a slave because he's an asshole, right? Killed that Puritan early in the story, whatever. But you know, it's kind of into alchemy. There's some things with Earl of Upnor, but um, you know, he's not he's not one that's it's Dejex, I think, is the villain. We're really going to walk away from the story thinking, wow, that's a that's a well created villain. Um, all right, let's go back through this list then. Uh, so a bunch of people from Jack's Cabal, the Bonanza Cabal, um, Yevgeny, Yevgeny just as a, you know, of course he create Neil Stevenson, I mean, creates another harpoon throwing, uh, character in, um, in, uh, Raven in Snow Crash. And you kind of want to imagine he has some things with weapons, right? With the, the harpoon and the. Uh, Yevgeny's flail hand, right? How he just pops into the story at various times doing cool things like trying to assassinate the Tsar, you know, get involved in that, the, the, you know, trying to save Eliza from Lothar von Hackelhaber at one point, um, trying to kill Dejex. He's kind of, yeah, isn't he the reason Dejex kind of died and had to be revived? Um, his The Battle of Cairo where he's, dying and he walks away you know he crawls away leaving a blood stain on the ground but survives this Be wonderful stuff when we first we first kind of meet him he's just with jack in the netherlands right on the boat but when we finally get to know him he's brawling in in algiers for money uh the and he's got raskulnik which is a whole interesting uh side plot that that stevenson gives us so yevgeny next i'm going to put the Asfanians. they kind of are a collective um, I think what's so great about the Asfanians is their, um, I'm, I actually realize I'm talking a lot about the themes, so maybe I don't have to do it. Just going through the characters, it's hard to avoid talking about the themes. But one great theme is the global networks connected by people, right? Diasporas. Um, we see a bit of that. Less so the black diaspora, but the, the Armenian diaspora is so key to the middle part of the story. Um, and especially Bonanza and the Junkto. Um, so Raj Asfanian, I guess, is the main one, but all the whole Asfanian family and network, you know, touching on commerce and uh, commodities and cryptography, uh, the Solomonic gold, um, all these things. And the, you know, the, it's a great, they kind of are, do come off as a collective at times, but they're great. Um, so next we have Bob Shafto, uh, I think Jack's brother, um, you know, a bit of a a wet noodle at times you know always following the orders of his commanders but he's got his moments like when he's freeing his fiance the fight in ireland the, the those nine years war in ireland and his scenes there the kill the the well he doesn't kill the earl of updor right but he's there at that duel right he shows a lot of courage in those scenes um what Eliza does to him is kind of heartbreaking, um, certainly, but uh, maybe crucial to both Bob and Eliza's story, in a way. Um, you know, Bob just becomes sort of a proxy for Jack, I think, at times, in, in Eliza's mind. And then he's forced to suffer. He's a suffering character in, in many ways, but he does his, he does his duty. He's, he's, you know, that, that kind of character. Uh then uh, Enoch Root, I'm putting on the list. Um, you know, he is like the first character we meet in the story. He's, I guess he, he could be seen as fictional because he's in the Bible. So Enoch Root is the one who walked with God. Uh, this is actually talked about at the end of System of the World, if you remember. So Enoch Root is the one who walks with God. Uh, basically didn't die. He's the ancestor of Noah that didn't die, it seems, or at least going to be interpreted that he didn't die. And so he's just been wandering the earth for thousands of years. And despite that, he wants to be part of this uh, scientific revolution. He's, and I think it's the same in Cryptonomicon when he appears. He's someone who's willing to step forth to the new age. 
Uh, so he's not a, a traditionalist. He's a nice contrast to Dejects in that way. Who Dejects wants to go back to the Middle Ages in a way, but Enoch Root is, you know, even though he's an alchemist, and he, the start of the story, one of the first things he does is he says, "Let to his alchemist friend, let Isaac Newton follow the path how he wants." If he becomes an alchemist, great. But if he does something else, maybe they'll be more beneficial for humanity. Who knows? Um, which is, of course, a great philosophy of for any parent or educator. Um, next, I'm going to put uh, Moza. Uh, I guess he's mostly here because he's responsible for the plan. Uh, he's got a wonderful ending of his character, just kind of wandering into the American, what would become the U.S. Southwest, riding with the Comanches or whatever. Um, someone guiding Jack Shafto um, in terms of, you know, teaching him how to put together a scheme. I think he's Jack Shafto couldn't do that. You know, he was just always following the imp of the perverse. And Moses says, you know, no, we have a plan, and we're going. This is how we're going to implement it, right? So I think it helps develop. I don't think Jack can do the be Jack the Coiner without learning from Moza how to put together a team, how to implement it, how to gather knowledge, how to, you know, do things step by step. Um, his background's wonderful too. It's fun to read about. So Moza de la Cruz. Um, oh, so many good fictional characters. This is a hard list to make. Um, Van Hook is next. Another character that's kind of there from the beginning. Um, and we don't get his background really till Bonanza. Um, but just a wonderful character. His when he's defeated, he cuts off part of his hand or whatever to sort of punish himself. That's a wonderful little character trope. So he's all like amp he's got all these amputated limbs and disabilities because of self-inflicted wounds. Um, you know the hatred of piracy. His his role as the commander of the Minerva. Wonderful stuff. So Van Hook's a lot of fun. Roger Comstock is the next character I'd put on this list. Uh, another good foil for Daniel. Uh, Daniel's much more idealistic. Roger's much more political and practical and a little bit schemy. Um, but he's also part of the natural philosopher school, but he's more into politics, I suppose. So he's a, a good, you know, of the fictional aristocratic characters. I think Roger Comstock's one of the best. And we see him throughout the whole story. He's always sort of there as a... As someone helping Daniel along his various uh, adventures, but he's got his own kind of ambitions at the same time, um, and he's, he's got his own kind of power base, and he develops from being a, a minor character, right, the lesser line of the Comstocks early in the story, to being um, one of the most important people in England. And the last one I put on here is Saturn. Um, uh, Saturn is sort of a proxy for Neil Stevenson. At least some people online seem to think so, and I don't see any reason to disagree with that. The character, the big guy with the black beard, I mean, the physical description is there, the interest in technology, but, you know, I don't know much about Stevenson's background, but, uh, but uh, you know, Saturn, there more could have been done with Saturn, I think, but I understand why he maybe didn't want to do it because he is if he is kind of filling that role as a stand-in for the author, um, then, you know, those kind of characters need to not do that much, right? Um, so you never quite know where lo loyalties lie when all these people are being revealed as, as traitors and part of the jackpot. You know, Saturn is too, but he, he's the one who sort of did it maybe for maybe not noble reasons, but not villainous reasons. Um, I guess Arnold Long's there too, but... Um, you know, he was, and he's a, kind of a symbol of the of the future of technology. He's a symbol of that, um, of the technocrat. Uh, but also from another, like Leibniz is in a way, but he's also from the lower classes like Jack. So he's, he's kind of what Jack could have been if Jack maybe had learned to read and got a little bit of education and hadn't been a vagabond and spent his youth, you know, at Tyburn Cross helping condemn prisoners die more quickly if, if he had more opportunities maybe he wouldn't have been in a you know move up like eliza but you know someone like saturn could have been a, a future for jack i think so anyways that's my top 10 uh fictional top 13 i guess fictional characters but um anyways let me know what yours are um both fictional and and historical characters what are your favorites
So uh, I'm about to sign off. I'm about to finish uh, my thoughts on um, this this book series, but I want to talk about text a little bit, books that I uh, that you might want to read. Now, in the acknowledgments, is it in the yeah? It's in the acknowledgments. Uh, basically, his you know how on the acknowledgments page I often talk about oh this guy helped me edit and this guy and he he mentions those kind of people to you. Uh, these guys read the draft or whatever. He acknowledges them, but he spends most of the time acknowledging the texts he read. So it's kind of a little bit of a bibliography. Um, and I think this is not everything he read, obviously, but he it's a big. Um, certainly, you see the touch of these books in the in the work. And I haven't read all these either, but one I did that he mentions is is um, Brudel's Civilization and Capitalism which is a three-volume book. Uh, one is about commodities, one is about commerce, and one is about really the origins of capitalism. And it's such an, a crucial book. And you see, this is probably the most influential book on this Baroque cycle because it's telling in many ways the same story, but it's doing it from a historical point of view, not a fictional point of view. So if you can get your hand on it, definitely, definitely read it. Um, he ever says here, in general, there's not room to mention specific titles, but I'll make exceptions for Fernand Brudel's Civilization and Capitalism series. Um, he's got his, he mentions a six-volume um, biography of the Duke of Marlborough by Sir Winston Spencer Churchill. Um, he mentions, and also all the books he uses as epigraphs throughout the book, you know, whether it's the Daniel Defoe, The Plan of the English Commerce, uh, Bernard Mandeville stuff, would probably help you grok a lot of what Stevenson's trying to do here. Um, what's the one? The well, cause Principia Mathematica, the right villainous uh, John Hall, uh, and he he read a lot of these historical characters. He read the writings of Lizzoletta, Milton, Samuel Pepys. Maybe Samuel Pepys should be on the list of best fictional characters too. Hook, Newton, Leibniz, all of their works. Um, so these like fiction, these historical texts. He really did his research here. You can tell he spent a lot of time reading uh, this stuff. Um, so it's not just the historical books. So that's kind of part of what we know he, he read and, and focused on. Um, but I want to mention some other books that might be useful. Maybe just four or five. I'm not going to go much longer here. Um, but I think one is, uh, it's called Monsters of the Market. And I forget the name of the author. I should have looked it up and wrote it down. But uh, that's really about the relationship between like, um, vampirism and zombies and things like that in capitalism, kind of horror in capitalism. But one thing that book focuses on is like, you know, the Frankenstein story of people digging up these dead criminals and experimenting on them. That was a real thing. Jack's afraid of this at the end of the story that when he's hung, he'll have his body dissected at the, you know, at the by by students and professors trying to figure out how this villainous brain worked. This was a real thing that happened. If you died in Tyburn, there was a good chance your body was going to be experimented on at some point. And that's running, it's even in the first book a little bit talked about. So it's that, if you want to know more about that fear, read that book, Monsters of the Market. Uh, and also Peter Leinbaugh's works in general are good, but specifically the one he co-wrote with Marcus Redeker called The Many-Headed Hydra. Talked about that many times on this podcast. It's one of my favorite history books. It's about the Atlantic world and the origin of capitalism, um, and it covers much of the same period of time uh, in here. But it looks at it from the perspective of, of the lower classes, but also from you know people like Milton and Blake and and those kind of people are in that story too. But largely focusing on on slaves, commoners, sailors, pirates, and these. And it's written with Peter Limbo, or sort of written with Marcus Redeker. But both of these people wrote other books you might want to read. Uh, Marcus Redeker's Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, uh, which is about sailors and a little bit about piracy. His book, uh, Villains of All Nations, which is a short little text about piracy. Um, his other, all of his work, I think, could help him inform, like, especially the class dimensions of this, of this story. And then Peter Limbaugh's book, The London Hanged, is really crucial, especially since hanging and violence towards criminals violence towards the lower classes is so key to the development of capitalism but described in the series just like that's how it's described in peter limbaugh's book the london hanged so what did i say four or five that's about right um there's of course many other books we can read i, I, I would add one more uh, cultures of darkness by brian palmer 
Now, the books I'm adding here really do speak to the class dimensions of the book, which is obviously what I'm maybe most interested in. But this is just scratching the surface of what you could read. Uh, whatever um, piques your interest in the story, you're going to find many, many books about that if you if you dig around. If you're into the Dutch, there's uh, you know wonderful books about the Dutch uh, Empire and all that. Um, if you want to know more about Tokugawa Japan because you like Gabriel Goto's story, you know you'll find plenty of books about that too. So um, this is a great book to inspire you to learn more about this period, right? Even if it's just playing a game like Europa Universalis, it, it, it makes you want to do that kind of thing because it's such an interesting world. Um, maybe not one we want to live in. I'm not one of these people who wants to live in these time periods because you probably would be poor, probably wouldn't live very long, and you probably have bad teeth. And, you know, just think about dentistry. But next time you think about traveling back in time and living in another time period. But I guess that's it. Uh, that's enough i'm going to wrap up this series on the broke cycle so thank you for bearing with me for what's i think now 28 episodes on this series it's a little bit gratuitous i know but um you know it was a nice way to spend a, 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 an anxious month for uh, as i was trying to get my visa in order and my trip back to taiwan in order it helped call me to read a book a series i book series i loved and um and share my thoughts about it so that's going to be it um now i recorded these all over the course of a month so i'm not i have enough episodes to last me a couple months uh so i don't know what i'm going to do i got to go to taiwan i got to sit in quarantine for two weeks and it's probably during quarantine I'll, I'll kind of decide the future plans for this podcast series i'll be going back almost certainly to the library of america texts like I have been since the beginning of this series. Um, by the time you're listening to this, the Lovecraft series is probably done as well, um, or close to being done, at least in terms of uploads. Um, so that's wrapped up. So I'm just going to go back to the old system of uh, of two episodes a week uh, based on Library of America texts. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I have different... I can't decide, to be frank. Um kind of want to do mark twain i kind of want to do poe i kind of uh, jesse from sff audio wants me to do heinlein but that's not a library of america series um i feel i should do something like ward wharton edith wharton i feel i should go back and do henry james and give another stab at that uh as challenging as that was for me i want to do more black writers i, I want to do uh richard wright i want to do uh those slave narratives. Sometimes I want to go back to the politicians. Maybe the broke cycle will convince me to go back to these early American writers. I don't know. People like uh, John Adams or whatever. I do want to do John Adams and John Quincy Adams. Uh, I think I have four volumes of their work, so I want to go back to that. But who knows? Who knows? I'm going to have to make a decision. Plus, there's a bunch of books I bought uh, over the summer. Um, Wendell Berry or whatever. So if you're hearing this and... I'll probably have made a decision, but if you're hearing this and you have any recommendations from the Live of America series that I should do, let me know what they are. Uh, there's probably a good chance I own the volume, at least a 50% chance at this point that I own the volume. So give me a suggestion and I'll, if someone, no one's done it yet, but if anyone suggests to me, uh, you know, a Live of America book they really want to see me do, I'll probably go ahead and do it. So um, that's going to be it. So again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for bearing with me as I, endlessly talked about the broke cycle um yeah i did it because i wanted to um but i hope you got some enjoyment out of it as well and if if maybe if you heard a few of these episodes i got inspired to read the book um great or read other neil stevenson books maybe someday i'll go come back and do cryptonomicon um i, I feel i might owe you owe this series that but that'd be another 12 episodes that might be a bit uh too much but we'll see we'll see how that goes um so i'm happy to put this series to a close as always thanks for listening send me your comments at hundredpagescast uh, at gmail.com i will uh i'd love to hear what you thought of the broke cycle if you've read it um so anyways i'll see you next time talking about what i don't know um but we'll see. thanks for listening